Please have your Bibles open there then at Matthew chapter 5, and we look at these uh, verses together, but we'll pray first. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is uh, a powerful and an unchanging word. Uh, Lord, heaven and earth might pass away, but your word does not pass away. It is rock solid. And that is true of you too. And that is true of your son. And we pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, we would see him. We pray, Lord, that you would captivate our hearts by what we see of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Uh, help us to be soft-hearted, to receive your word, and to be changed by it. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, now, we come to quite a challenging uh, section of this Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at. I want to read to you just a, a quick little excerpt from a book that was written in 2010, uh, where there's a, a church planter who is analysing uh, modern male American culture at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, those that we would now call uh, millennials. He says this, It may be troubling to look at how they spend their money, but it is appalling to see how they relate to women. One needs only to follow uh, these millennials to the club to see what they think of and what they want from the opposite sex. Again, the stats tell the story. There are nine 0.7 million Americans living with an unmarried different, sorry, 97 million Americans living with an unmarried different sex partner, and 1.2 million Americans living with a same sex partner. Every second, $3,075 is being spent on pornography. Every second. 28,258 internet users view pornography, and 372 internet users type adult search terms into search engines. This is every second. Every 39 minutes, a new pornographic video is created in the United States. One out of three American women will be sexually assaulted in her lifetime. The United States has the highest rape rate of the countries that publish such statistics. It is four times higher than Germany, 13 times higher than England, and 20 times higher than Japan. It's pretty sobering reading, isn't it? And that was 2010. We're right to be appalled by those stats. They are a little snapshot of where the West is as a culture, aren't they? And you can count on at least, I think, two further things. If that data is 13 years ago, then things are almost certainly worse now. Uh, and if this is where the United States is at, then we're following them, right? Generally tends to be the rule, doesn't it? But of course, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, isn't that really, though, Andy, pretty much what you'd expect... Uh, from a pagan world that is constantly rejecting God, rejecting the Bible, pursuing their own agenda. I mean, Andy, I've read Romans 1. I know where this is going. But surely, you might say, things are not that grim in the church, are they? 
Well, on one level, I hope they're not. Not as bad, uh, at least, as the culture around us. Uh, and, and that is certainly, I think, borne out to be the case amongst genuine, uh, committed Christians. But divorce, which Jesus is going to speak about here in verses 31 to 32, is far, far more prevalent amongst Christians today than it was, say, 40 years ago when I, when I was growing up. I mean, I, in the church that I grew up in, a decent-sized church, uh, I, I, we rarely heard of anyone getting divorced. I don't know if that was your experience. Rare. It's very, very rare. Nothing like as commonplace as it, as, it is, as it is now. And actual fact, I would say that over the years I've, I've been in pastoral work, I've dealt pastorally with a lot of cases, a lot of cases of mostly men struggling with lust and specifically with addiction to pornography. That's definitely been a growing, a growing trend, even in my own lifetime. So these are issues that the church cannot and must not be silent on. I, I, even if it makes you want to sort of squirm a little bit in your seat, I'm sorry about that, but we can't be silent on, on these things. Uh, you know, that, that we have, there's a battle raging, I think, in the church amongst God's people, actually God's people, genuine believers, for the sanctity of marriage and for the purity of our minds. That is a battle. And Jesus certainly wasn't silent about such things. We've had it read to us. Uh, we're going to look at it in just a moment. But before we do that, uh, let me just say, it's, it's been a couple of weeks, been away at Keswick and various other things, since we looked uh, at the Sermon on the Mount. We've had a couple of visitors in the meantime. I'm mindful also that we have visitors over the summer. So just give me a couple of minutes to set the context here so we're understanding where we're going properly. Matthew chapter 5, get it open in front of you. From verse 21 to the end, if you look down at the pages there, it's concerned with really the issue of how citizens of the kingdom of heaven, Christians, the kingdom of God, how they are to live in reference to the law of God, which Jesus has said to us, he has come to fulfill. We then are to read and we are to obey the law and the prophets, that is, the whole of the Old Testament, says Jesus, as it comes to us through him himself, through Jesus Christ, as it is mediated by him. And that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a strong thing, as we're seeing already, we saw last time. The application of the law of God then, which occupies this last, this second half of chapter 5, is given in a context. It's given in, first of all, context of the Beatitudes that we had at the beginning of the sermon, verses 1 to 12. And it's also given, secondly, in a context of Jesus' call for his disciples to be salt and to be light in the world. So how does that affect the way that we read it? Well, first of all, the kingdom of God, number one, belongs to those, in verses 1 to 12 we saw, who have owned their spiritual poverty before God. They know where they're at. It belongs to those who've come to God mourning over their sin, broken by their sin. Citizens of the kingdom endure persecution because of their decision to live a righteous life and to follow the example and the instruction of their king. 
They do not live for this present world, but rather for the world that is to come when their kingdom, the kingdom of God, is fully established in the new creation. That's what we're living for. And so having said that then, how are we to live? Secondly, we are to be, well, first of all, like salt, says Jesus, affecting. We have an impact on the putrefying, morally decaying world around us. And we are to be like bright lights, says Jesus, that shine into the darkness of the world, showing the goodness of Christ, directing men and women to him. That's how we're to live, right? And that's the context then leading us right up to these strong statements that reach the ears of Jesus' disciples here in the second half of chapter 5. If we, here's, here's, here it is really, in, in the short of it. If we are to be fishers of men, that's, that's what Jesus is talking about just before he starts this sermon, isn't it? If we are to be fishers of men, if we are to play our part in drawing men and women and children into the kingdom of God, then our righteousness, that by which we stand before God, must be greater even than the most fastidious religious sect of the Pharisees who are really into keeping the law. We've got, to, we've got to do better than that. So we saw last time, verses 21 to 26, that merely ticking the box, do not murder, yep, no blood on my hands, well, that is simply not good enough for the kingdom of God. We must also address the issue of anger that's going on in here of contempt and grudges in our hearts. Yes, even those things that we have no intention of ever acting on, right? Because they are the same sin in embryonic form in the heart, starting to, starting to grow in there. And divine judgment, I mean, this is strong stuff. Look what Jesus is saying. Divine judgment, according to him, will fall just as readily on the sinful heart as on the sinful hands. That's, that's what we're seeing here. It's strong. And so suddenly, the legalist, the rule keeper, who thinks that that's the way to go about things with God, finds, or, or at least they should find, that he or she has been flawed by the very law that they want to boast in and find some sort of security in. The sheet that they thought was clean is covered with red ink, actually. And so as they turn reeling from their encounter with the sixth commandment, guess what? Jesus now slaps us with the seventh. That's where we're going today. So look with me now at verse 27 with all of that backdrop there. Let's look, first of all, as we did last time, at the letter of the law. Verse 27, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now, this again seems very straightforward. The Pharisee knows this command. They know it very, very well. And so they're thinking in their heads as they read a command like that, probably something like this, I just need to exercise a bit of self-control. I need to stay faithful if indeed I am married, okay, of course, that, that, you know, and, and I need to stay uh, faithful and committed to the wife that I've committed to as long as I am married. That's how I'm reading that law. As long as I don't commit a physical act of infidelity, as long as I don't go off and have an affair of some sort, then surely I'm on the right side of this one. 
That's how I think the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, would have unpacked this command for people. Now, just as as, as a side here, that already, I think, to the ears of Western culture, seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Why is adultery such a big deal? Sure, someone might feel betrayed. They might get their feelings hurt. It's painful, yes, but they'll get over it. They'll move on. That's, That's what we're told, isn't it? Surely it's better to make a clean break than to stay in a marriage where the love has grown cold and you're not happy anymore. And in this vein, adultery then becomes trivialised, actually, in the movies and the sitcoms that flood onto our screens. Have you noticed that? If you haven't, I don't know what rock you've been living under. The spirit of the age that we live in and and that we need to be aware of is that we should do whatever we need to do to make sure that we are happy. Do what makes you happy. And that usually just means what makes me happy now or what's going to make me happy in the immediate short term. That's, that's how we live, isn't it? Have I read that wrong? I don't think so. We're living in a world then that is very messed up sexually. Sex, sex which, which God made to be a profound expression of lifelong faithful unity has just been really as trivialized and simplified down to an act of ple- a pleasurable act. That's really what it, all that it's about now in our, in our world. And so people casually talk on social media about their body count. Have you come across that expression? It refers to the number of sexual partners that you had, and there seems to be like a, a number which is acceptable, which is probably somewhere in double, triple digits. I don't know. And into that culture, this culture right now, God speaks his eternal, unchanging word we've been singing about. Do not commit adultery. There it stands, immovable, carved in stone. God's design then is for lifelong, monogamous, committed, faithful marriage between a man and a woman. Now, that's already pretty radical to modern ears, isn't it? You can get arrested for expressing that if you don't do so carefully. But it wouldn't have been particularly radical to the ears of those that Jesus was speaking to. So imagine you're, down, you're, you're there on the mountainside. Even those who are eavesdropping in from the religious community. But what he does go on to say certainly would be after this opening line. So we've seen the letter of the law. Let's look at the heart of the law in verse 28. But I tell you, says Jesus, okay, the law's going to come through me now. I'm mediating this law to you now. And I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. You know, back in the 1990s, I, I worked with a, with a colleague, a fellow engineer, who, like me, had, had recently married And I recall once going with a group of engineers, we were all piled into a car and we were driving down to to Skelmersdale, to Skem, uh, to go down to the Greggs, get some lunch. Uh, It was summer, the girls were all out in full force, um, you know, dressed however they were dressed, you know, the summer uniform, uh, especially up in the northwest, I've got to be careful how I speak. But these, these fellows in the car with me were expressing their appreciation in the way that, uh, the inimitable way that young men do for the way that these girls were dressed around them. 
And someone then addressed my colleague and said to him, as, as you, can, you can see this, can't you? Yeah, but you're taken now, aren't you? Yeah, you're taken. To which he replied with an expression I've never forgotten. Uh, he basically said to the carload of us, hey, it's okay to go window shopping just as long as you leave the credit cards at home. That's great, isn't it? Jesus does not agree. But this, you see, actually captures the very problem with laws, doesn't it? They invite you to draw a line, which you can then, and and actually quite often will, because it's the way our human hearts work, try to get as close as possible to without actually crossing it. That's what laws do. So we creep up on on the big issue. Well, I didn't quite, I didn't actually cross any lines, I didn't actually break any laws. But this is not the way that God's law points. This is, not, this is not to obey the heart of God's law. And so we're going to see, we're seeing here, aren't we, as we look at this verse, just as anger, we've seen, is murder in its embryonic form in our hearts, so too lust is adultery. That's really what Jesus is saying as we take the flow of this, isn't it? And so yet again, Jesus is pulling the rug out from under the feet of those who think they can use the, the law of God as a means to prove themselves to be righteous. Because all of us are caught out by this one, are we not? Aren't we? I vividly recall a men's breakfast in Liverpool where the pastor of our church stood up and addressed a group of about 100 men that were there. And his opening line was... You can imagine the silence. He's about to speak. (laughs) He starts with this line. Every man in this room is a sexual pervert. (laughs) We're like, okay. (laughs) And it it was provocative. It got the stunned silence that he was probably looking for. But the thing is, it's true. By the standard of verse 28 here, there's not a single man here today, I'll guarantee, myself included, who has their life completely right and straight and sorted out in the area of their sexuality. There's no one here who has not broken, who has not at least warped that area of their life in some way. I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable, but actually as we go through this sermon, that's really what Jesus is going for. We saw it last time, didn't we? You've got to allow the full force of what Jesus is saying here to hit you before you start trying to analyse it any further. Let it hit you like a tonne of bricks. That's the way to respond to this sermon. What you do in your mind betrays what's going on in your heart, the sin that is in your heart. Now, how does this work? Now, when we were going through our series in James, we saw how James in in chapter 1, I'll pop some verses up on the screen. James in chapter 1 puts sin and temptation under the microscope for us so we can actually see what is going on. It's worth just giving a couple of minutes to thinking about this. Here is sin under the microscope in James chapter 1 verse 14. Take a look at it. James says, each one is, is tempted... When by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James is explaining how sin works here. It's very helpful. 
And he explains, look at what he's saying there, it all starts with desire. Any desire, actually. Not necessarily even an illicit desire. It might be a desire for food, or a desire to be loved, to be accepted by people. It might be the sexual desire. And though those desires are not, the desires themselves are not necessarily evil, what happens next in the process of temptation is what James calls a luring, a dragging, an enticing towards sin. And as he goes on to say, if the luring and the enticing is not dealt with, the desire will conceive. I think that's a key word there. Desire will conceive. And at the point of conception, life starts. The sin has taken life. And the bringing forth, the giving birth of that sin becomes an inevitability, according to James. You see this slippery slope? James con concludes here that if sin is allowed to grow up, if, sin, if the sin birthed in our desires is allowed to go unchecked, if we continue to be unrepentant for long enough, the result will be death. It'll bring death. How many people have left a trail of devastation because of unchecked lust, which gave birth to sin, in this area. Now we've got to caref be careful actually also here not to go beyond what Jesus is saying. It's not sinful to notice an attractive person. Okay, we're really trying to get to the details here. Let's not be weird about this though. To notice that someone is attractive, that's not sinful. But we must, brothers and sisters, we must be on guard about letting that glance linger so that we become enticed, so that the desire is fed, so that it is brought forth to conception. That's the point, isn't it? Someone once pointed out, you can stop the birds landing on your head. You, you can't stop the birds landing on your head, but you can stop them from building a nest. That's the point, isn't it? And how often do we fail? That, we laid out the theory there right? You know, just, just, you know, you get to that point, cut it out, right? But how often do we fail? How often do we fail? Constantly. And there are no loopholes to be found here, by the way. I think Jesus is stitching those up for us. It is not okay to do a bit of window shopping, you see, just as long as you leave the credit cards at home. It's not okay. That, you see, is closer to the mindset of the Pharisee, actually. And many of them were doing something similar with the issue of divorce. Take a look at verse 31. So Jesus carries on to talk about this. He says, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You see what's going on here? See how the little Pharisee mind is working? So the thriller's gone, yeah? A bit, and, and you've done a, the thrill's gone out of your marriage. You've done a little bit of window shopping, because that's all right, you left the credit cards at home. And a, a better option has made itself apparent to you. Simple, what, what do I do? Simple. What I need is a divorce. I can do this, then I can do things legit. 
Divorce can be used then to, to legitimately move on to someone else. That's, that's, that's the game being played here, isn't it? After all, they would say, wasn't it Moses himself that, that established this system whereby we've got certificates of divorce that we can have written out and we can do it all legit and it's all kosher in the eyes of God? Now, this is a complex issue. We're not going to get too deep into it. But I think taken in the context of what's being said here, the point that Jesus is making is quite straightforward, actually, isn't it? Just as today... In Jesus' day, there was a school of thought that was pushing for a quickie divorce system. The historians, they tell us that, you know, you could get yourself a divorce if she burned your dinner. I mean, it was really trivialised. That was one school of thought. So here is a loophole. I can just use divorce to satisfy my lust, right? Legitimately. The law will actually be on my side if I just do it the right way. But Jesus, again, see what he does here? He gives this legislation a radical redirection. He says, look at what he's saying here. Unless there's already been some serious infidelity in the marriage, unless there's already a, you know, a mess been made, the divorce scheme is not going to stick it just won't. It's a sham. In the eyes of God, says Jesus, before whom you made your marriage vow, that first marriage still stands until death does you part. Therefore, as Jesus spells out in verse 32, look, all you achieve through this loophole finding, these legal shenanigans, is a multiplication of adultery. Your original wife is still married to you. And anyone she marries, therefore, will be committing adultery with her. And obviously the same goes for you. That's the logic of Jesus' argument. And so Jesus is showing us the painful and uncomfortable reality. It's very uncomfortable, isn't it? The, the, the clarity of this, where the law is really directing us and as we see it, we've got to let it undo us. We've got to let it expose our spiritual bankruptcy so that mourning of our sin, we run to him. And so if you're uncomfortable by anything that's been said so far this morning, that's good. <laughs> I think the only person that wouldn't be uncomfortable by it is, is someone with the heart of a Pharisee, isn't it? But what then, going forward, is the way of the kingdom? What's the way of the kingdom? The citizens of God's kingdom. What are we to do about the lust in our hearts? Here's this huge problem, and it will be a massive problem that plagues all of us as human beings. What are we going to do? Well, let me give you a few suggestions. The first one comes from Benedict of Nursia. Uh, he lived in the late 5th to the early 6th century. He was the founder of the Benedictine monastic movement. Heard of Benedictine monks? Okay, the guy who founded that. In recounting his story, uh, historian Nick Needham writes this. He says this. As a young man, his parents sent him to study in Rome. But this heavenly-minded student fled in horror from its corrupt city life. And he became a hermit, living in a cave in Serbiaco, east of Rome. There's a suggestion for you. 
Here he battled with demons and with terrible temptation to sexual impurity, which he cured by rolling around naked on thorns and nettles. How does that sound? That's one option. <laughs> or you could try the approach of origin. Some of you will be smiling already. The Alexandrian early church father, Origen, who, who died in 254, he had one of the most remarkable minds in church history. I would, uh, I would find it hard to recommend reading his theological works, which are tainted by some serious errors, but he was held in some high regard, not only for his intellect, but also for his piety. He was a very holy man. Bishop Demetrius of Alexandria saw his potential, and at only age 17, think about that, those of you who are around about 17, he put him in charge of the whole sort of the little Bible school there for, for new students. That school became famous under his, his teachings. They, they called him Adamantius, the, the man of steel, because of the force of his, his arguments and the holiness of his life. Origen devoted himself to, to study and to self-denial. And when he was continually plagued by lust for women, he had himself castrated. Eusebius, the great early church historian, says of this young man's act, he writes this. While Origen was teaching in Alexandria, he did something that gave proof enough of his young and immature mind, but also of his faith and self-control. He took the saying, there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake in too literal and absurd a sense, and he was eager to fulfill his saviour's word and also to forestall any slander on the part of unbelievers, for despite his youth, he held on religious matters before women as, as well as men. So he quickly carried out the saviour's word, trying to do so unnoticed uh, by most of his students. But however much he wished it, he could not possibly hide such a deed. Demetrius learned of it later, since he presided over the community there, he was astonished at Origen's rash act. He's not alone, by the way, in taking these words strongly like that. Are you, are you convinced by any of these options yet? Well, let's instead look at what Jesus says here. Verse 29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus repeats the argument twice, doesn't he? But Jesus is not talking literally here. Uh, why do I say that? Because if you were to remove your right eye, what will happen? Guaranteed your left eye is just going to take the job on straight away. Seamless. Seamlessly will take the job on and be just as bad. And anyway... All you really need is your mind's eye, isn't it? To lust. But the point Jesus is making here, listen, is literally true. It's literally true. Jesus here is advocating radical action to be taken about this area of our lives where sin is concerned. The Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Colossians 3. Look, look at how he puts it. He's basically saying the same thing. Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. 
Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Hell looms because of this area of our lives. The way of the kingdom is to deal radically with our sin. Now that might start by making some tough decisions about times and places and occasions where you know that you usually feel tempted. You'll know what those are. I'll give you some starters. It's probably when you're feeling tired. Probably when you've had a long day and you're looking for that quick fix. That's when temptation has its, one of its most powerful strengths. Are there places you need to avoid? Are there TV shows you've just got to decide to quit watching? Do you need to filter your internet? Do you need to turn things off at a particular time of the day? Do you need to use communal areas or get an accountability partner? These are all things that are radical and can help. Do you need to have a game plan for particular places and situations you know that you can't avoid? You need to think ahead. And if nothing else works, what is Jesus saying here? Better to throw out your tech Throw out your gadgets. Don't, don't care how much they cost. Throw away your phone. Put it in the bin if it's going to lead you to sin. Right? These things are, are helpful. They are good measures. And it is the way of the kingdom. It is to be radical. It is to hate our sins so much and love God so much that we would take that radical action. But though they are good measures, they won't cure your lustful heart. Don't be deceived about that. This isn't a cure. For that, you need Jesus. All of us will battle with this in this life. And victory will only be found in him. Victory in those battles. Ultimate victory will only be found when our bodies are redeemed and our minds are redeemed. One church leader who used to mentor a group of us young ministers when I was, uh, when I was a bit younger... He said to us this. It's an interesting line. He says, in the same way that you worship your way into an addiction to pornography, you must worship your way out of it. Does that make sense? It's quite a profound thing, actually, that. People find themselves ensnared in the grip of lust because they've believed a lie and they've made something more important than God. And the way out is to put him back in his proper place. It's the only way. I think Jesus captures this in, in the parable he told about the man who found hidden treasure in a field. Do you remember that story? Here's this man, he's walking along through a field, he finds treasure. Uh, he uh, immediately recognizes it for what it is. And once he's Grasp the greatness of that treasure. Once that treasure's consumed his heart and become bigger than anything else in his life, then he's able to go and joyfully sell, just give away, well, to, to sell at least, everything that he possesses so that he might be able to buy that field and have that treasure. If lust has your heart, you need to discover that Jesus is better way better, that Jesus blows every other treasure out of the water. Here is one wiser than Solomon, the fairest of 10,000 to our souls. He's the creator. 
He's the sustainer of all. He's uncontainable, inconvincible, invincible. He's altogether wonderful. And he's the king of kings and the ruler of all. He's our redeemer. And for love, he emptied himself of all that was due to him as God. And walked the road to the cross. Where he paid for the rebellion and the sin and the failure of sinners like you and me. Read about him. Think about him. Meditate on his words. Speak with him until he becomes bigger. Until you see him for the treasure that he is. If other things are pulling you away, he's not big enough. You need to be captured by the gravitational pull of his mass so that he'll hold every area of your life in orbit. And that will require discipline. Running the race, fighting the fight that is set before us. All relationships take work, take work, don't they? It's no more so the case than our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I know of no other way. How then are we to take this teaching? Let me just finish up like we have done in the past with these five points. The first thing is to recognize the beauty of the kingdom. What a glorious kingdom this is that's being described to us. Think about it. It's a kingdom of faithfulness and purity. It's a kingdom you want to live in, isn't it? Where people are not objectified. Where we're not judged on appearance. Where the vulnerable feel safe and secure and loved with a pure love. That's God's kingdom. Second of all, use it as a standard against yourself. What we've just looked at this morning. Do that. If like the Pharisee, you are living with the delusion that you've got a handle on your sin and you can measure up to God's standards, you need to realize that the sin that lurks in your hearts is uncontrollable. You need to realize that Jesus sees straight through us. He knows the truth and that judgment is a reality. Third of all, you need to use it as a guide for Christian living. Jesus shows us here how we are to live as disciples and citizens of his kingdom. This is what the law of God requires when it passes through Jesus to us. These are his requirements. Lust will ruin us. Radical action must be taken, says Jesus. And if we fall short, the one thing you don't want to do is go looking for loopholes and excuses. We must never play with sin. We must never presume on the grace of God. The Christian life is one then of repentance, of turning from our sin and turning to Christ and trusting him. It is of letting him become bigger so that he fills our vision. Fourthly, reach then for his grace. Seeing how far short we fall. We must come to him for his forgiving grace. Come to him for the help of his Holy Spirit to obey him. Now I know a number of you came up to me um, last time we were doing this when we looked at the anger of the issue of anger. Uh, and 
as I did, you felt strongly convicted about the sin that's in your own hearts because there is anger that needs dealing with, isn't there? If that's you, listen, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a very good thing. The answer, which is, is wonderfully, delightfully simple, is run to him. Run to Jesus. He will not turn away sinners who come to him for mercy. We're not to live our lives constantly looking over our shoulders, looking back at the sin in our lives. We're to come under the conviction of it, turn and run to him. And fifthly then, look at Jesus, the king himself. See him. See him in his absolute purity. As you read through the Gospels, do you not see how broken people, including many women, were drawn to him? How tender, how loving, how caring he was. How pure in everything he did. Secondly, how did Jesus respond to temptation? How did he do it himself? Remember how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? I mean, we could do a whole sermon on that. But here is a model for you and I. What did he do, essentially? He turns to the truth of God's word. It is written, says Jesus. And he does that so he can counter the lies of temptation. Those lies can be sort of slippery and they can, they can sound like they're right. Happiness is here. Fulfillment is here. But when you take the word of God and you can say, no, but hang on, no, it is written, ABC. You'll show the lie to those lies. And he trusted that word entirely. And because he knew and because he trusted the word of God, then he knew that God had something far better in store than any of the pleasures that sin could possibly offer to him. Right? That's how he defeated sin and temptation. And so in closing, whatever failures do lie behind you, if you will confess your sins and come and, to, and trust Jesus... That's where they stay, behind you. Before you is a glorious saviour. Let him even now fill your vision as you follow him. We're going to just finish up with a moment of, of quiet. I think it's good as we go through this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, just to work through in your mind just for a minute or so the things that we've seen and that we've heard, if God has put his finger on things in your life that need to be confessed, actions that need to be taken. Just take a quiet moment now to pray about those things and then I'll pray and hand back to Tiago. Father, once more, your word exposes us for what we are truly like at heart. We are, every one of us, sinners in need of your grace. Father, remove every last trace of pride in our hearts, self-deception, anything that might resist admitting our, desperately, our desperate need to you, of you for salvation. And help us instead to, to trust you, 
to turn to you, to trust in your mighty Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose good name we pray. Amen.